2: plushcare.com slash weightloss
1: hello and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that shuffles through the shelves of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli I'm Michael Leder and I've seen the lot of them.
3: And I'm Jake Cunningham and I've barely seen any of them
1: so join us in our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli So Film 4, this summer i doing a full Studio Ghibli retrospective. I do all things digital for Film 4. I'm also a podcaster on the side. I host the The White Lies magazine film podcast. And I decided to rope in my esteemed colleague, Jake Cunningham. That's me. I also
3: host a podcast for Curzon Cinemas here in the UK, as well as working in commissioning for short films for Channel 4. But I've never seen any of these Ghibli films. And every day across the desk, Michael glares at me in disappointment. Uh, <laughs> and now he's finally been able to remedy that the glare is softening with every episode it is (laughs) we've got someone else in the studio we have our first
1: guest in the ghibliotech we've allowed them through the precious doors of our library and sitting down in a cozy armchair we have beth webb writer and programmer for the bechdel test fest little white lies empire magazine and bbc radio as well beth welcome to the show
2: Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, boys.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be delving into history and context as well as Jake's first or second impressions. This is one you've seen before, I believe. Yeah, we haven't actually said the name of the film. Uh It's
3: My Neighbour Totoro. This was the very first Ghibli film that I saw. That must have been six, seven years ago. And I remember watching it and thinking, I love this, I'm going
1: to watch all of these films <laughs> and proceeded to never watch another one again. Well, we are part way through remedying that right now. Beth, you have seen Totoro, I presume.
2: I've seen it. So many times. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and can you give us a taste of your knowledge of Ghibli? Is this the one that you've seen, or have you seen many of them, a handful of others?
2: I'd say I've seen a fistful of Ghibli's. I think yes. uh... <laughs> So I'm sort of halfway between the two. I think this was the first Ghibli film I've seen. I was trying to think about the first time I'd seen it, and I can't remember. I honestly can't. Mm-hmm. I wish there was this like profound experience that I had where I was like. Oh my goodness! But all I know is that I watch it often, um, and it's definitely the film that I kind of recommend to friends. If I'm having like a blue day, I'll sit and I'll and I'll pop it on. If into the cinema to see it, mm-hmm. Michael, we've seen it together before. In the
1: rain, <laughs> a film for summer screen at Somerset House <laughs> last year. What a magical experience!
2: Yeah, the absolute <laughs> downpour. I don't think I would have sat through that for anyone but Desiree. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you did write a piece for *Little White Lies* earlier this year for the 30th anniversary of the film. We yes. need to make sure we put that in the show notes. Oh yeah, definitely. Looking at the the making of and impact of.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, my name so is I, have, I have something of a, a special bond with Totoro in that um, I was born two days before it was released in Japan. I really wanted to to just explore it and talk to like minded people about the film, and it was a real pleasure to write about. I really I really enjoyed writing about that.
1: Two sisters, Mei and Satsuki, move into a dusty old house in the countryside with their university professor father. Their mother is convalescing in a nearby hospital and they're counting down the days until she is discharged. Each day brings new wonders as the sisters explore the house and its neighbouring natural world, from the soot sprites that hide in their home to a family of troll-like creatures that live in the root of a huge camphor tree in their garden chief of these is King Totoro, a large round furry friend who comes to the rescue when May goes missing, enlisting the Cat Bus, a 12-legged feline vehicle, to help reunite the sisters and reassure them that their mother is on the road to good health. listeners to our previous
3: episode on Grave of the Fireflies would have remembered that that film was made in conjunction with this one, My Neighbour Totoro. So now it's time to look at the second
1: half of that double bill. Yes, it is. We're going to go all the way back to the mid-late 80s. This is when Studio Ghibli had only really just been founded as a studio. They'd made one film under the Studio Ghibli banner so far called Laputa, and they still had to tussle with finances to get their films made. I'd like to start with Hayao Miyazaki. I, I love his production notes, his creative statements. Before he makes films, he had a long one for My Neighbor Totoro. He said, My Neighbor Totoro aims to be a happy and heartwarming film, a film that lets the audience go home with pleasant, good feelings. But he's also very interested in it being a specifically Japanese film. He says, though we live in Japan and are without doubt Japanese, we continue to create animation films that avoid depicting Japan. In this age of internationalisation, we know that the essentially national is what can become most international. It's interesting, running on from his previous film, Castle in the Sky, known as Laputa in Japan, that was set in sort of a fantastical version of Wales, or at least a, a fantastical world based on Wales. And likewise, Na- nausicaa his film before that, was set in a fantasy world. He wasn't making specifically Japanese mm. films and wanted to turn it around here. And he wanted to capture, this is another quote, what we have forgotten, what we don't notice, and what we are convinced we have lost. So he put this pitch together and went to Takuma Shoten, who were the main owners and finances behind Ghibli at the time, and they weren't interested in this <laughs> twee adventure about two girls and a furry forest ghost spirit-type guy. Yeah. They wanted these big epic adventures from Miyazaki, specifically ones that had interesting foreign-sounding titles. So he found it hard to get this project off the ground, and it seemed that it was going to be a straight-to-video, 60-minute animated film. But when Grey of the Fireflies, that project, landed on their desk, and Shin Shosha, the publishers, said, mm. we'll put it the full... Budget for Grey of the Fireflies. The producer Toshio Suzuki, who we've said before is this. Yes, he's, he's the strings. street businessman. Yeah. He saw an opportunity utilizing a, a sort of peculiar, specifically Japanese social uh, kind of point of etiquette. He said, This is a quote from a great interview which we'll put in the show notes. He said, The plan was for Shinchosha and Takuma uh, to join hands and each create a movie that they would release as a double feature. Shinchosa has a longer history. Uh, and since that's the kind of thing that presidents of publishing companies really care about, President Tokuma would have to accept it if the president of Shinchosha requested it. So he literally got the president of pretty much the Penguin of Japan, this like old publishing house, to call up the younger company and say, we're going to be involved in this, you should be involved too. And they went along with it. So they managed to pull off this amazing coup where this film that had been rejected was then suddenly greenlit. I love In the way that you, you talk about the production of this film as if it's a heist. <laughs> 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 it's kind of like that, isn't it? Great, dirty, and they pulled it off. <laughs> would you believe it? <laughs> well, that's, that's how Suzuki talks about it. He says, and then the rest was easy. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great oceans type film, wouldn't <laughs> <and thing. laughs> it? I mean, and the rest was easy until the release when we covered this in the Great Fireflies episode where it was a very hardcore double bill. You have this 80 odd minute adventure with, you know, woodland spirits mm. followed by or preceded by two kids struggling to survive in the dying days and the fire bombings of uh, the end of World War II. So whichever way you played it, it wasn't really a great evening or afternoon out at the cinema. But Totoro did get... Acclaim, it won awards at the end of the year, uh, all the big awards for animation in Japan. And then a couple of years later, once Ghibli start thinking about merchandising and mm. licensing their properties to, to ancillary products, Totoro takes off and mm. becomes pretty much the Mickey Mouse, the Winnie the Pooh, the, Well, he's and, of, in of he's the logo of the studio. And becomes the logo of the studio. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's a fascinating point where in the history of the company, where they've been quite precious about the themes and the messages of their films, suddenly they'd realise let's play a bit of the, the game here right. let's do merchandise that's how we can get in the public consciousness and then internationally it was it, did, it made it to the UK first actually it had screenings at the Barbican in 1991 uh, as part of an anime festival or a Japanese film festival but then it did get a US release in 1993 localised by uh, a subsidiary of Troma Films the, uh, the sort of schlocky horror gross out film company that made <laughs> Toxic Avenger and The Class of Newcombe High and so they ended up bringing this wonderful, cute film to the States.
2: It's a natural progression, I think. For it really is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: and that was when Roger Ebert reviewed it. And Roger Ebert, who would later become a huge champion for Miyazaki and Jubilee in the States, he wrote about it saying, whenever I watch... My Neighbor Totoro, I smile and smile and smile. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just as, as one final point, talking about reception, one big fan of My Neighbor Totoro, one you wouldn't expect, is the Japanese legendary filmmaker Akira Kurosawa of Seven Samurai, Rashimon, Akiru fame. He, at this point, was very late in his career, late in his life, and he saw this film and then placed it in his top 100 films of all time. And there's a great article online where it's like a fireside chat between mm-hmm. Hei Miyazaki and uh, Akira Kurosawa. Where suddenly halfway through, I picture it in my head as Akira Kurosawa just leaning over and saying, "By the way, I really like the Cat Bus." <laughs> 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 and um, he says in that interview, uh, "Those are the kinds of things that people like me in this business can't do," and that's something I'm really envious about. This is, you know, Kurosawa is the, one of the great artists of what we call live-action cinema compared to animated cinema, and he's really jealous of what Miyazaki <laughs> can pull off. It's a really fascinating route through, and it becomes this touchstone. It becomes the logo. It becomes it what? ends up in Toy Story 3. Exactly. <laughs> it comes, pops up everywhere, actually. I saw it in, a, in an X-Men comic as well. It's, it's it, Totoro becomes a, a real emblem for the studio internationally. Michael, when were you first introduced to Totoro? I'm similar to Beth, actually. I can't remember the first time i watched it we'll get to these the my sort of route through these films as we go through the series i think my first ghibli film was princess mononoke then i saw spirited away at the cinema my neptoshiro was released in the uk on dvd in around 2006 mm. so it must have been around there that i watched right. it for the first time i bought it on dvd and watched it over and over i've seen it in cinema and then most recently at film for summer screen last year which was such a it's one of those magical moments where it's an outdoor screening in london and you look at the programme and you think, these, these, this programme has this moment where it rains. <laughs> and if it rains at this point, it would be incredible. And it was yeah. a, a night last year in August where it was raining all the way through. But as we'll see, this is a film that gives itself over to participation through umbrellas.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like if I was it was a comfortable evening, but it was like, it was... Beyond atmospheric, it was really magical. And
1: the hardcore fans turned up. It's one of those where rain does affect play and people might want to stay home, but people turned up for that. Mm. And it was such a special evening. Well, sadly, I wasn't at that (laughs) (laughs) screen. But I have now caught up with the film. So uh, Let's get into the film. Okay, so let's talk Totoro. Jake, you mentioned that it was several years ago when you last watched this, watching again with fresh eyes, adult eyes. Yeah. Uh, What what, what struck you?
3: There's so much here. I don't have to worry about where I would rank this film. That's your job to do later. But this is definitely my favourite one. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing that I'd forgotten about it is the music and just how quickly that score comes in. And Mm -hmm. it's really different. It develops over the course of the film it f- feels like occasionally we've got four different scores going on at once mm-hmm. and the first notes of the score are just fantastic they sound like this weird ghibli super mario brothers theme <laughs> tune that i really loved and uh, there are just moments in the film where any dialogue drops out like narrative might even drop out and you're just being completely led by movement and music and it's so wonderful and there are a few scenes that I'm sure we'll pick out over this review. Uh, I know Beth's got some dance moves that she might like <laughs> to share. It's uh, not a
2: dance move; it's a routine. <laughs> and it's, um... it's
3: completely on topic here. It's not just <laughs> it's, it's, this is not frivolous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think like Joe Hasashi, for me is just kind of all over this film. And mm-hmm. like he's completely key to it and this is for me like that that first introduction to him
1: well that's what's interesting he does the score for i think all but one of miyazaki's movies and so has a long history of working with him and working with ghibli and it's very much if you think about the defining features of all these films he, he ranks quite highly and spirited away is often seen as one of his you know, big scores, but I think this is the one. Mm. He, what I find so fascinating about his music and thinking about him in context of Japanese composers at the time, he has a classical minimalist background, but he dabbles in electronics, He, but then he also has a great melodic sense. And the score here, there are at least three themes that have burrowed into my mind. There's, of course, the one that no one can get out of the head once we say Totoro, Totoro. <laughs> uh, um, there's also <laughs> one that is this beautiful 1960s, almost Disney music theme that m- brings to mind Sleigh Ride, the Christmas song, or Summer Holiday. You can sing the lyrics to to, to. (laughs) those. There we go. But then also that ethereal nighttime theme, which you mentioned Nintendo music, you can completely see that they're working from similar... A similar backgrounds there it sounds like it could come from Legend of Zelda or some of the creepier Final Fantasy scores maybe.
2: It's very majestic and it's got those beautiful kind of chord progressions for those like grander moments like when they're on top of the tree and they're making the plants grow but then you've also got these really kind of childlike sounds like a moment that springs to mind that's so different and so varied is when May falls into the camphor tree for the first time and she's nestled on Totoro's belly and <laughs> his whiskers are kind of going nuts and I don't know how he manages to... It, it just adds such a magic moment to that introduction. Mm-hmm. That kind of innocence and wonder and you know, meeting for the first time and sort of the, the absolute delight on her face as she kind of realises what he is. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of a little bit suspicious but also not bothered because he's falling asleep again. And, <laughs> and and you've got that, but then you've also got, yeah, like I say, these, these real moments of kind of majesty that, mm. that he manages to create that really just lends this magic to what is already a very a very beautiful film
1: It's part of really what you'd leave the film remembering mm-hmm. the music In, almost on a scale that you, not many other films or if you think of bodies of work from other studios you may have the big song from a Disney movie for example but you don't have themes on a soundtrack mm-hmm. that, that worm their way what mm-hmm. I like about Joe Hisashi which is a I'm not sure if it's apocryphal I'll have to, I'd love to speak to some of who may know, know better but it's a stage name Joe Hishishi. It's not his birth name. Right. He developed it early in his career, basically ripping off and transliterating the name of the uh, American pop producer Quincy Jones. So if you flip his name like in to, to Japanese um, format, so surname first, and it's like it's Hishishi Joe. Right. It's kind of apparently in kanji if you wrote Quincy Jones. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. No um,
3: which so citation or... needed really, but... <laughs> ha- has anyone ever seen Joe Hisashi and Quincy Jones in the same room? <laughs> I certainly. Said... <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's delve into so, what there is of a story in this one. And uh, mm. it starts for me with familiar Ghibli territory, which is a uh, moving house and girls in the back of the car. Yeah, <laughs>
1: similar to well spirited away but they're excited yeah. uh, in this one as opposed to being uprooted mm. in the way that Chihiro was in Spirited Away. But very similar isn't it mm. this idea of movement and moving into a new new area of being upheaval for the character Mm. it's really fascinating and what I love about those early scenes is that it's these adventurous girls yes they're not scared by anything there's a bit where canter the boy comes over and goes yeah you live in a haunted house and they're like we don't care we're gonna go run around and yeah they've
3: got these very authentically childlike voices that I think like borderline shrieking uh, because they are so excited Uh, it's, it's slightly grating at points but that's what makes it feel real that these are uh, slightly annoying kids. I
2: find that it, it, I find it, it delightful. <laughs> I completely disagree. Probably because I was that child. It just when you can't, you can't get the words to describe <laughs> that, like kind of dizzy, giddy, and you just have to let it out. It's yeah. I'm I all for it. Shriek yeah. away, girls. Yeah, <laughs> and they but they
3: shriek about the fact that they shout, "It's a haunted house!" <laughs> and they've got these enormous smiles and they're running around and they can't control themselves because the prospect of living in a haunted house is actually exciting <laughs> which do... is
2: really different no i love it and there's this kind of hesitation with may but she so desperately wants to be the same as her sister so you see that hesitation and when you see the sick gremlin sort of dancing away and you could tell for that moment she's scared but then she sees the fearlessness in her sister mm-hmm. and she copies her and I, I really like that kind of copycat essence because that's so true of, of childhood you know mm. you look up to your older siblings you look up to your peers and you want to be just like them and she so desperately wants that i, I think it's lovely i mean, I think it's a real kind of true slice of what it is to be a sibling and to be a little child. <laughs>
1: Such <laughs> it's a good sibling movie. Yeah. You know, Miyazaki and his director's statements always seem so, I don't know, intellectual and serious in his in, in his uh, you know ideas and his aims. But he does say in interviews how. That uh, idea of being alone and thinking that there may be a ghost or something in the house with you and the idea of laughing, he said that's what he does. Mm-hmm. You know, he re- he, There's an interview that says he was recently in a hotel on his own and he, he heard creaks around the building. He thought, I'm going to laugh and laugh and laugh and they can't <laughs> get me if I laugh. And there's something so genuine yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, really. that sounds like the ridiculous spell from Harry Potter. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> to
3: get rid of a Dementor, you just have to turn it into the thing that makes you laugh. Yeah. Exactly.
1: But something that he do- does mention in his attractive statement that is so magical uh, literally so. It's, it's this magic of the everyday. Just the mm, idea mm. of opening up a dusty old house, wandering around, getting a well working. Yeah. Yeah,
3: is, I think the first half an hour of this film is mm-hmm. just that. It's right? just we, that yeah. we don't get bogged down in much at all. And it's so nice to watch, mm-hmm. just to see the workings of this building in this space and just to explore. It's, and that's it.
2: Yeah, it's made at a child's pace mm. without mm-hmm. being dull and, and something that I would consider a slow film. It's made at the pace of, of children moving house that's that's the premise for the, mm. most of the film and it's still completely enchanting
1: and of course we do meet these such spreaders, dust bunnies, mm. whatever you want to call them, <laughs> yeah. which appear in with with legs in yeah. in a, in spirited way as well. Wow. Yeah, and more importantly, in our know, little thumbnail, and <laughs> <so laughs> I think that's their their most iconic appearance. A shout out to Sophie Mo, of oh, yeah, White Lies and Church of London fame, for providing us with that artwork.
3: So we've got this uh, this lovely opening thirty minutes uh, where we are just exploring the forest and the house and the attic and the well and that's really lovely and because it's so nice and you're so wrapped up in the world you don't really notice the fact that we've only really met the dad and the daughters Mm -hmm. uh, and then we meet the mother Mm -hmm. of the family and she's in hospital And that's really the the first kind of narrative point that it locks into.
2: Mm -hmm. As part of the article that I wrote, I spoke to a really fascinating woman called Helen McCarthy who wrote a book about Hayao Miyazaki um, called Hayao Miyazaki, Master of Japanese Animation. She she really knows her stuff. And something that we, we spoke about very briefly is the theme of death that runs through Totoro. And I think it's really interesting to acknowledge that it's, very much a, a theme. But what what she she said to me, and I'll I'll just quote her, is it allows death to assume a role in the movie without personalising or demonizing death. And I just thought that was a, a super interesting point because well, yeah.
1: well there's that there's that point about halfway about the half an hour in maybe. Yeah. So you've had the sort of jaunts around the house and the, the garden and everything and then you find out, you know, where the mother is. Mm. Mother's convalescing. And it's a way for the film to acknowledge death and parents mortality you know and Totoro is this spirit that comes and fills that void um, and it's one of our I mean uh, I don't know if it's a, actually a theme throughout the movies but absent parents absent mothers yeah. we see that in Grave of the Fireflies as well well right? and Spirited Away is her being separated uh, like, from her yeah. parents it's Something that is there, it's a texture of the film to the point where people, you know, serious critics, adult critics, see it as a darker film than it probably is. What I think is really impressive is within that first
3: 30 minutes, the world building and feeling for adventure is so rich that you almost don't notice it. So it it's quite a punch when you are taken to the hospital and you actually understand why they've ended up in this house and what the family dynamic is at this point. And so then when you're introduced to Totoro and this just unending
1: joy is brought into the world. It's so lovely. Mm-hmm. That sequence where it's May on the day where her sister's at school and it's her dad like beavering away on whatever scholarly work he's working on and she's she sees one of the little the smaller, Totoro's yeah. darting off through the through the uh, the undergrowth or whatever mm. it is, and she follows him. It's such a great sequence, yeah. isn't it? One of those we, we talk about these sequences that are just perfect on their own, and this is one of many in this film. And when she finally, as you said, Beth, just clambers up on top of this, I mean, what what is Totoro? Is the question we want to well, ask, this right? Is... What is this guy? Well, <laughs> she says, she just says, "You're Totoro," as if she
3: she knows mm-hmm. already. Um,
2: and that's that's partly what makes this film so fantastic is there's no definitive answer. We could debate this for the rest of the podcast on both a physical level like he's had comparisons to seals owls, trolls but he's I've, furry as well he's yeah. so furry. <laughs> and then when I watched it, I watched it this weekend sort of kind of like dog like mannerisms yeah. for the first time and sort of the, the kind of the way that they sort of glance sideways and the, the sort of loyalty. But then also on like a metaphysical level, <laughs> it's been compared to something called Kami, which is like a spirit tied to nature. So, you know, is it tied to the camphor tree? Is it a he? Is it a she? I is know, it a god? Yeah. Is it... <laughs> Is it real or not? I know that Miyazaki encourages you to either, you know, can believe it's a figment of their imagination or it's real. And that's up to you. Although he says that he believes that Totoro is real. I 100% believe he's it's real. real. It's, yeah. Like, yeah, it's is, like in Peter Pan, it. like, would you clap to bring Tinkerbell back? Kind of thing. Like, do you believe Totoro <laughs> is real? Do you believe in him? I, I love that, I love how accessible it is how you can interpret it and project onto it whatever you want mm-hmm. and I think therein lies the magic, it's it's your experience that you're taking away from that it's your projection.
1: And that's the projection that May's making um, you see in the Credits at the end. The, the, the line is, you're a Totoro when she talks to her sister and says, I've met Totoro. Have you been Totoro like in your storybook? Mm. Over the closing credits, you have these depictions of the family in different moments. And there's one where it's the daughters reading a storybook. And it seems to be the three Billy Goats Gruff, that sort of folk tale, fairy tale. But on the back cover, there's a face that looks just like a Totoro, right. mm-hmm. and so there's a suggestion that it's from her storybook, and that's the that's the name she ascribes Totoro.
3: I, I read it as at, like at Totoro, in that there. So you have so these sort of tro- three, yeah, you have these three little creatures, and their species is Totoro, and they are a Totoro, and you have the king one, and the blue one, and the white one.
1: Well, design-wise, you can see uh, a lineage from, there's a film that uh, Miyazaki worked on with Issa Takahata in the early 80s called Panda Go Panda and it's a, Adventures of a Girl with a Massive Panda who has at least the dimensions of a Totoro <laughs> right. and his early sketches for what would become Princess Mononoke featured a huge cuddly, it looks like Totoro with a with cat bus's face. Right example so it's it's interesting it's such an interesting character to, to dig into the, the cat bus the the nightmare fuel of the <laughs> cat
3: bus.
2: yes my brother is absolutely to this day terrified <laughs> to the point where when i was watching it last week and i sent him a, a picture of me watching the mm-hmm. cat bus and he was like why are you watching it why why are you sending me this he's 26 <laughs> like he's he, he watches scary films all the time. This is the one that haunts his dreams. Um, it sounds
1: like you're the one that's haunting his dreams. <laughs> by sending him. <laughs> this.
2: Well, this is scary, Right. But yeah.
1: the cat bus appears in what I think is the absolute standout sequence from this film, the bus stop rain oh, sequence. Oh, yeah. Um, which, again, this the sense of the magic in the everyday. Miyazaki just homes in on this one thing, which is standing at a bus stop with an umbrella with drops of rain from the trees above you landing on the umbrella yeah. and making funny it's noises. these two girls just waiting to pick up their dad from I the know. bus stop. And he turns it into this beautiful, almost silent short film. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. And then the cat bus is one of the great, surreal animated creations. The fact that the door is part of its body and you're sitting, it makes that noise. (laughs) You've got the sort of mice that are on its eyebrows that are the... the the headlamps (laughs) and
2: that like maniacal grin on its face like it's it's um I can see why he gets upset watching it (laughs) just these all seeing eyes
3: and when we get into the night time and with the cat bus Mm. I think we go back to Joe Hisashi he really lets loose here Uh, the cat bus music is Looney Tunes Mm -hmm. um <laughs> and the, the nighttime stuff is when we're getting into that ethereal realm that I think becomes that spirited away sound that is,
1: almost becomes a musical trademark for Ghibli. Yeah. Well, and, and also it's, it's that realm of dream and fantasy. Mm. I know, Beth, your, one of your favorite sequences is, is that when they plant the, the seeds in the garden yes. and at night the Totaro's come out and have a little dance
2: they do a little dance. They do a sort of three jumps in a row forward and then you've got to kind of squat down and nestle down and then you've got to do just a big reach. Like you've got to really work up a sweat doing it. But it may, I encourage you to go away and do it. because it's really good fun, especially if you've got younger like, family members. Go away and teach them to do that. It's a really, it makes for a good Sunday afternoon. Mm. <laughs> I mean,
3: much like you demonstrating that dance to us, I would say that this <laughs> film is also timeless. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah Michael when we were talking about this film yesterday you said My Neighbor Totoro" is the perfect Miyazaki film yeah why is that
1: I think this is just precision focused Miyazaki Um, I I think almost all these feature films have something to recommend them Uh, that magic is there present throughout but this is the one where theme animation story everything the sense of experimentation and the surreal are all there I think it all focuses down on that one moment where They tell their dad about Totoro and he says, oh, he must be the king of the forest. We should go and pay our respects at the shrine. And they find this shrine and they're paying their respects. And there's another shrine that pops up later on in the film when Mei gets missing. And it's just really deftly, without dialogue, really, or without didactic dialogue, brings together these threads of the magic in the everyday, the beauty of nature, and the sort of the, the natural pantheon of gods and spirits that lie just beyond our realm of understanding and that's one of his messages throughout all his films and this is one that is told so well that a child can understand it and adults too without some of the issues that he'll bring into his later films or his longer films where plot really gets in the way of the enjoyment mm-hmm. or plot really makes things more complicated than it should be and then this sense that this is a film with no clear antagonist no clear structure no clear stakes and but such a sense of wonder and fun. So mm-hmm. I think this is where this is where all of that is chiming at once. Yeah.
3: I'm gonna take a wild guess and say that you like this film. I, I <laughs> yes. Yeah, so <laughs> Michael Leader, let's put it on the leaderboard. So we're three episodes in. And so far, we have watched Spirited Away, Grave of the Fireflies, and now My Neighbour Totoro. The leaderboard, as it stands, has Grave of the Fireflies at number one, Spirited Away at number two. And where is My Neighbour Totoro going to slot in?
1: Well, I think it, there's only one place it can go, and that is top of the pile. I really think this is the one to beat, the gold standard. I quite, Beth, would you say this is gold standard for you?
2: I would say this is absolutely top draw.
1: I think this is, in terms of all films, one of mm. my favourite.
2: Yeah, I would, I would absolutely agree. I think, as you say, with that means of timelessness, it doesn't really lend itself to an era. Um, it's clearly a time before now, but I mean, it could apply to any time. And as I say, I just love that you're so able to project onto that whatever you like, and that Miyazaki is able to create that in such a delightful way. I think, yeah, it's one of my favourite films. Well,
1: Beth, thank you so much for joining us today, talking about Totoro. It's been a real chore for you, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, you know, not all heroes wear (laughs) tiny acorn hats (laughs) and dance in the rain. (laughs) Where can
1: people find more of you if they want to find more of you?
2: Uh, So you can find me on Twitter at Beth K Webb.
1: And we recommend that you do. Mm.
3: And we hope you've enjoyed your time in the Ghibliotech. Next week, we'll be taking Whisper of the
1: Heart off the shelf in an episode that we've dedicated
3: to Michael's choice. (laughs) Yes,
1: this one is a bit of a deeper cut, a cult film. Uh, one that's not directed by Hei Miyazaki, though he did write the screenplay. And I, it's, I mean, spoiler alert, it's one of my favourites. I can't <laughs> wait to talk about it. <laughs> Until then, you can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael J. Leder. And you can follow Jake on Twitter at @JakeHCunningham. H. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. We record at Soho Radio... Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Mo, and Steph Watts helps us out with all, all of our GIFs, images, and anything else we post online. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, and Harold Scheel. That's me. I do the voiceover for the credits as well. Thank you for staying past the credits. We'd like to give you a little bit of extra trivia for those that do. One thing I'd like to point out this week is we talked at length about the bus stop scene, the iconic moment where uh, the girls and Totoro are waiting in the rain with their umbrellas. It's actually the poster of the film, but those eagle-eyed listeners will see that it's actually one girl standing next to Totoro at the bus stop. And she has Mei's pigtails, but sort of Satsuki's uh, dimensions. And that's because that is based on concept art from early in the production when it was meant to be one girl, not two, going on an adventure with Totoro. The second sister was only added later on when Miyazaki wanted to enlarge the film to a feature length and add some extra stakes.